Hi, and welcome to the Palliators Podcast. I'm your host, fellowship-trained hospice and palliative medicine physician, Dr. Tara Kateen. This podcast is for healthcare professionals who want to become more comfortable and more confident in caring for their chronically ill and terminally ill patients. With the help of the physicians who trained with me, we hope to provide education and to promote palliative care one podcast at a time. We're so glad to have you here. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. If you remember from part one of our grief series, I've been interviewing Shannon Donovan. She has a master's in social work, and she is a licensed clinical social worker. She has an extensive background in hospice. She has worked in counseling. She's currently at Eisenhower Army Medical Center working with chronically ill and terminally ill patients. She also works closely with the residents, helping to train them and help them to learn how to take care of the whole patient. She also teaches at Augusta University, and I am so glad to have her back for part two of our grief series. Thank you for coming back. Oh, sure. Thank you for having me. I think that we had such a good time yesterday, uh, last time that we (laughs) recorded it, and I think that um, some of my residents that I work with actually had some feedback for us, so. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's just quickly do a brief review of the Kubler-Ross five stages of grief and go from there. Yep. So um, the five stages of grief, according to Kubler-Ross, are um, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Okay. And when your residents were talking with you, I think you may have had some specific ways to deal with stages of grief that could apply to all of them. Something about how to interact with the patients or families? Oh, yes, yes. Um, I think that one of the things that I try to teach them when they're specifically maybe getting ready to have and sit down and and, uh, have a family meeting or a goals of care discussion with the patient and the family is to make sure that um, they are, of course, listening to the patient, which they do very well. But sometimes what we don't do very well is we don't provide an opportunity for silence. And I think silence can be very, very important. Um, even starting in graduate school, for you know, as a social worker, they have told us that as providers, we should always be comfortable with silence. And the important thing to remember is that the provider should be more comfortable with silence than the other person that's in the room, right? It's hard dealing with awkward silence. I'll give you that. It is. It is. Because if you think about the traditional counseling session, you really don't want to be sitting there going to see your therapist and your therapist is doing all the talking. Right. You're not doing any of it. It's the the same kind of theory applies when you're talking to a patient in a healthcare setting. They do want to hear what the physician has to say, of course, but the physician does not necessarily need to be doing all of the talking. Silence is golden. (laughs) Right, right. You know, and I think it helps because it gives family the time to process what they've been what they've been told it gives them an opportunity to come up with questions that they might want to ask I think it also really gives them the impression that the physician is not in a hurry or a rush to move on and go see another patient yes I can see that same idea as sitting down when you walk into a room not just standing there with your hand on the doorknob like you've got some place to go right Right. It, may, it may take the same amount of time if you sit down as it does for you to stand there with your hand on the doorknob, but it gives the impression that you've got all the time in the world for them. Right, right. 
I know that one of the things that the the residents had some questions um, more specifically, I think that even though I'm your guest, that I think that they had questions that they wanted me to maybe pose to you as a physician who's, Yikes. <laughs> yeah, who has had the, the difficult discussions with the families. And you and I, since we've been able to work together, I've been able to actually see you in action and, oh and see some of those discussions. And I, I wanted to ask you about what some of the discussions were like or how you've handled the discussions when maybe you're being asked to go back into a room and clarify information for a patient and and figure out what is it that they understand when the diagnosis is not necessarily a positive thing. Have you had to deal with the denial or the anger being directed at you as a physician from the f- patients or the families? Those kinds of things stick with you. And how did you deal with those emotions from the families or patients? Well, I'll say the first few times I didn't deal with them as well as I would now, although you have your good days and your bad days, just like any other thing. But the one thing that that I have to remember is not to be defensive. If I feel defensive, and what I tell my residents is, if you're feeling defensive or you are revisiting the same information time and again, then what you really need to deal with is an underlying emotion that your patients and their loved ones are having. Mm-hmm. For for example, a patient who who was not doing well in the ICU, in spite of all the correct interventions being offered, the resident went in to talk to the family, and he started off saying, well, your, your loved one is on the correct antibiotics and all these other medicines, and he's not doing well in spite of all that, and we expect this to go very poorly, and we'd like to change our focus. To which the loved one said, well, can't we get him to another hospital that has different antibiotics? And the resident said, well, ma'am, he's on the correct ones. We've sent all his fluids to the lab and we've got the right antibiotics based on what our laboratory studies have shown. And we don't need to send him to another hospital because he's on the, on the right antibiotics. The loved one says, well, what about the hospital across the street? They might have different antibiotics. And he said, well, ma'am, he's on the right antibiotics. And, and I'm telling you, we went through this scenario more times than I can count. And if I could go back and and change that scenario, I would have interrupted him and said, this must be so difficult for you to hear that in spite of all the correct treatment, no matter where he goes, he would get the same treatment and he would not do well and he would probably die in spite of all of the correct treatments being offered to him. Mm -hmm. It might be time for us to focus on helping him live as comfortably as possible instead of trying to make something work that's really not going to help him. Right, right. And so I address her her feelings. This must be so difficult for you. This must be frustrating for you. This might even make you angry to know that we can't fix this. What about, have you ever had patients, I know I've heard patients say this to physicians when I've been in the room, that will just, they seem questions that are almost impossible to answer, but they're saying things like, well, why didn't you find this sooner? Or why didn't you run this test? I told you that you needed to run this test and nobody did it. Nobody listened to me. That's really a tough spot to be in. And 
first thing I notice when I hear those statements is the emotion. And again, I feel that those things make me want to be defensive, maybe make want to excuses for the other physicians or even blame the other physicians. And when you're feeling that way, then what you have is an emotion that needs dealing with, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to say, I hear the frustration in your voice, or you sound so angry. And, you know, I might be angry too if I were in your shoes. And try to align yourself with the patient and the loved ones, not come at it from an us versus them. If you let them know that you are on their side, you are not an adversary. You want the patient to be well. You want things to go smoothly. It's not like we went into medicine so we could make this tough for people. Right. So I try to align myself with them Mm -hmm. and, and try to work at it from a, let's work on this together and we may, we may not be able to fix what happened before, but let's see that we can make it the best it can be now moving forward. And it's um, you make it seem easy that there is a right thing to say. But, <laughs> but you know, I think the, the other good thing to remember, especially, again, with denial and anger, is that there actually isn't the the actual proper correct thing to say. There's never a perfect thing to say. Yeah. There might be wrong things to say. I think you might be able to tell <laughs> right? us a few of what you've heard. Right. Um, I what think, have you heard? Well, I think, you know, I've, I've heard, um, of course, I've, I've seen healthcare professionals come into the room and try and begin to explain the five stages of grief to the grieving um, widow. <laughs> um, I've seen people make the, the blanket statements of, I'm sorry, just I'm sorry. And I, I think that you've added or said before, your comment to me at times has been that you've found that it's better to say more specifically, right. I'm sorry for. Right. Be specific about what right. you're sorry for, not a blanket, I'm sorry, not a, you know, somebody says something went wrong. You just don't say, I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry this happened to you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they've lived a good life or he's lived a, a long life or, um you know, you can even, and again, to remember that all these things have good intentions. There was a, a, a hospice example I remember where I went to visit a, a patient who was dying, and I was talking with his wife, and she said that she had two or three friends who were all widows, and they were very close, and they said to her, kind of, I mean, I think maybe jokingly a little bit, but also trying to show support that she was going to join their club. And I, I, again, it, it is kind of shocking to hear, but I don't think they meant it that way. Right. I think they meant it as a way to demonstrate we're here for you. We've walked this path before you. We know what it's like. We know what you're facing. We know what you're feeling. And we will be here for you. But her reaction when she was talking to me and processing that statement was, I don't want to be a part of this club. I didn't ask for this, and this is not the club that I want to be a part of. You know, I want to be a part of my husband is a survivor club. Right. And she's not going to get that opportunity. So, again, that, you know, elicited some anger in her for sure. Just another time that I think silence is, is golden and silence is, is very valuable. That also makes me think of how sometimes people will say, I know exactly what you're going through. 
And you can never know exactly what someone else is going through. You might be able to relate to their experience, but you do not know what that particular person is going through. Right, right. You do not. You do not. I think I've heard you talk about the connection that you have with your father is different than a connection that I might have with my father. Though they're both great connections, right? they are still different. You can't understand my experience totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking of another very difficult case that we had at the hospital recently where the spouse was very, very angry toward all the physicians. Um, so any... Uh, provider, basically. It was difficult for the staff, I think, to, again, not defend their own actions. Um, Difficult sometimes even for me to not defend my own hospital, to take pride in the care that I know our hospital provides, and allow her to just openly really vent what her anger and her feelings were. I think that a lot of people who get really angry over time, many of them, not all of them, will come to realize that that may not have been intentional mm-hmm. and have regret over how that went. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think so. I, I would hope so in this case. The other thing that was interesting about this case as well is that... Um, she was um, in the ICU watching while the resuscitation efforts were taking place. And I know you and I had talked about that um, on a separate occasion and that there were some mixed um, opinions about whether or not family members should be involved in, in watching the resuscitation process. Yeah, I, I find that in my experience that witnessing that really helps them to know that everything was done. And it also lets them witness the, I'm going to use the word brutality of it, Mm -hmm. that it can be brutal. And they might find that that's just one step that they probably don't want to take. And they might say enough is enough. Right. But either way, I think it is valuable for them to know that everything was done that they wanted to have done and then to witness it to know that they may not really want it done now that they see how violent it can look. When they get to the point where the physicians are ready to to stop um, resuscitation efforts, do you think there's value in, in obviously not allowing the family member to make the decision, but including them or making them feel included in the decision that at this point it's become futile and we're going to stop? I should say the reason I asked that question is because um, one of the residents who was involved with this case felt that um, when he was reflecting back on the case, he said he felt like to an outsider, to a family member, that when you do see the, the room full of people who are helping to resuscitate, that when it gets to a certain point, the discussion that, that takes place where the code needs to be called then to the outsider, to the person who doesn't know, to the family member, it looks like everybody just quit and gave up. I really think that when it's time to call the code to an end and pronounce the patient dead, you need to tell the, the loved ones watching that you've done 
all that you can really do mm-hmm. and that it hasn't been effective. If you have if you have provided all the interventions that are appropriate to try to resuscitate someone and they fail to continue to offer interventions that are not going to be helpful to him would be inappropriate. Mm-hmm. And I think when it when the person leading the code says it's time to stop, then it's really time to stop. And you go to the loved ones and say, I know this has been difficult for you to watch. And you may wonder why we're stopping. Well, we have done this, that, and the other thing. And then we did the other thing, this and that. Mm-hmm. And we did some more of this and a little of that. And none of it was effective. Right. And to continue to do that to him would not have helped him in any way mm-hmm. and may have actually made things worse for him as he dies. I think when you answer questions like that and you address it head on and honestly, and again, compassionately with a human connection, I think you're going to help the grieving process at that moment, but I think you will also help the grieving process later on. Um, the, the grieving process that we all know ultimately does last the, the rest of their lives, just not as intensely, which also kind of leads me to how is that different from when um, you and I have worked together in the past and I've seen you guide a withdrawal of care discussion? How is that different? Oh, my. Well, first thing that I want to say is that I wish people would stop using the expression withdrawal of care. Uh, why is that? <laughs> I don't mean that to be offensive, oh, No, no. But we never withdraw care. Okay. We stop interventions that are not doing what they were meant to do. They are not effective. They're not helping us reach a goal. So we're stopping interventions that are not working. And we're planning on switching to a different kind of intervention, which also provides care. We never withdraw care. We're always providing care. The goals of the care may be different. Mm -hmm. So I don't withdraw care. Okay. So back to your question. (laughs) How do you have those discussions with the families, or do you feel that it's good, again, to have the family in the room when certain interventions are being um, no longer offered? If I'm withdrawing life-sustaining treatments, if my plan is to discontinue interventions that are not effective for helping somebody live longer or get cured, and I'm switching to interventions that are to help the patient live as fully as that person can until he dies, Mm -hmm. well, then I like the family to be present. That's my own bias. Not everybody's comfortable with that. But I want them to have the opportunity to say yes or no. I offer it to them so that they can be there to see the caring that is provided in that transition. And there's a lot of caring that goes into that. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, I guess. I think you did. I think you did. Do you think there's anything else that, that we're missing today? surviving survivors grief uh disenfranchised grief anticipatory (laughs) grief goodness so that's now part three (laughs) (laughs) um because really disenfranchised grief uh complicated grief anticipatory grief um all those things really would be a whole separate podcast really (laughs) 
I think that might be several podcasts. <laughs> yeah, it might, yes. <laughs> well, I guess that actually may bring us to the end of this podcast. And guess what time it is? Oh, is it time for the, the quote? For the reflection. For reflection. Yes, it is. It's from Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and David Kessler. It goes like this. The reality is that you will grieve forever. You will not get over the loss of the loved one. You will learn to live with it. Well, I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, please give us a good rating and review on your podcast app. You can visit our website, thepalliators.com, for our show notes. If you have any suggestions or ideas for future podcasts, please send a message through the website, too. Also, follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We look forward to next time. Bye for now. <laughs>